Welcome back, church family. Um, one more week. Just a gift and a pleasure to join together with you all um, in the sweet grace of God to be able to present the word one more week. Um, it is um, just a privilege to be able to present the word um, on any platform. It is still this platform, but we are ever grateful to God um, for his continuing mercies. I am particularly um, excited about presenting this sermon as we are still walking through the book of Psalms. And one of the things that we have noticed, I think hopefully you've noticed this as well, as we have been walking through the book of Psalms, it has been like a scroll unraveling as, as God is revealing to David and the, the different psalmists that write, but also to us who read these different aspects of his nature and of his character and things that we're learning about the dynamics of man's relationship with God. And so I think it is just a great thing that even as we go forward, like it just becomes clearer and clearer in Psalms, the intricacies of our relationship with God. You know, we talked last week about him being a shepherd and then a guide and as well as a host. And so today what we're going to look at, as you see the title of the sermon, is the king of all creation. And that emphasis is going to be on all. And we're going to see um, why that's so important um, shortly. But we also want to, what I think we're learning through going through the book of Psalms is that it forces us to have a high view of God and it forces us to have a high view of Scripture. In having that high view of God and that high view of Scripture, it causes us to be really ignited in our relationship with God because it brings us, you know, as much as it brings us closer to him, we're also more in awe of who God is. And I think that's one of the things that has been a great joy for me as we've been walking through this text. Now, what we're going to do today is go to another Psalms text that we're somewhat familiar with, which is the uh, 24th Psalm. Um, but there are things here that we're learning about God as God is revealing himself. And the key thing that God reveals to us through this text, through the Psalmist David, is that he is the sole creator of everything. He is the sole possessor of all of his creation. And so what we want to learn today is in knowing that how we God's own creation respond to him. So what we're going to see in this text is there are three ways in which man worships God and they're outlined for us in the text today. And that's going to be through contemplation, through consecration and through commemoration. Let's go to our text. Psalms 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those that who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of the God of Jacob, Selah. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word. We know that you are the king of all creation, God. And what we want to do is have such a reverence for who you are, the nature of who you are, and see the power and the nature of our relationship with you. And as we are your creation, remaining in our lane as your creation, God. So we thank you now for um, just the tremendous blessing it is to be in relationship with you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, David opens up here this psalm with a pretty emphatic saying, and he says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, and those who dwell therein. And so what we want to do is literally jump head on right into this passage because there is one thing that David is immediately making clear for us as we read this text and that there is one eternal man who can claim the earth as his own possession and that is the Lord and no one else. See, we live now in this world where everything is being politicized, where people are saying that the climate is changing and it is mankind's fault that it's changing and it's a detriment to our health. And then you have some people who say that that is a fear tactic that is being placed out there by liberals. And you have another group that says, well, the Native Americans are the ones who truly possess the land, while other people argue that it's the Jewish people because their descendants trace all the way back to Adam and Eve. And you have some people in the black circles that say, well, but we were the first cultivators of the land and we were snatched off of that land. And then you have some white people who consider themselves the, the end all be all of legislation in the world. And think that the world is their responsibility and it moves according to what they say. But none of these people can make the claim that God has made here through David in this text. So let me make it clear for you and anybody who thinks that we have any possession of the earth whatsoever. As the Bible says, the earth is the Lord's. All right. God, unassisted by any outside force, created the earth with his own power. Not only that, but the Bible says that he now holds it together merely by the word of his power. If the earth is not the Lord's, then we are nothing more than these little auctioneers who are all trying to grip and grab at our little piece of possession of the earth and are vying for our right to claim it. And more than that, if man is in fact responsible for maintaining it, for supporting it and making sure that it constantly replenishes, then we have failed. Listen. We have science and we have technology and advancements in farming and crops. But let's be clear. 
The only reason anything grows is because God causes it to grow. The only reason anything can sustain life is that God sustains that life through his power. Now, he may give man the technology to to help in that process, but God alone causes it to happen. Man simply is not powerful enough to control what the earth does. Let's look at what our Psalms text says in Psalms 85 and 12. He says, yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Or let's look at Ezekiel 34 and 27. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. The Lord makes it clear here that not only is he the possessor of the earth, but life happens according to the work of his hand. The ground can only yield its vegetation because God causes it. That also means, though, that if the ground can only yield its vegetation because God, who is in possession of it, causes it, that also means that when it, the sun shines, it shines because God caused it. When it rains, it rains because God caused it to rain. If the wind blows, it only blows because that is what God decided he wanted to do on that day because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Look, we remember in the Bible when we see Jesus, he's on the boat, they're adrift at sea, and the disciples are concerned about the storm that is, they think is going to take their lives. So in their concern, they go wake Jesus up. When they wake him up, he simply tells the waters to be still. And they look at him and they say, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Well, I can tell you who he is. He is God in the flesh. He ordered his creation to do. That means when we see in the Bible, when God said, let there be light, it had to happen according to the word of his power, which means if the world is still held together by the word of his power, then it rains because God said rain, the sun shines because God said for the sun to shine night and day happens because of the word of God's power and nothing that man can contribute to it what we must understand is that the only way things can happen is that when God speaks all of creation stands at attention to what God says this is what frustrates me about the decree and declare name it claim it people because why would you want to have the power to decree and declare when God has reserved that power solely for himself God said in that quote, in that scripture that's often misquoted, I cause things to come into existence that were not. God reserves that power for himself and no one else. And so because of that, that means everything that happens, happens because God causes it to happen. Now, I guess to a degree, I do understand that people are having a little issue with if God is responsible, and maybe you're making this connection right now, 
If God is responsible for the sunshine or if God is responsible for the rain or if God is responsible for the wind or if God is responsible for the vegetation, that also means that God is responsible for the tornado. God is responsible for the earthquake. God is responsible for the tsunami that's going to take hundreds of thousands of lives. And I think that's the issue that people have is that if God is responsible for all these other things, then God is also responsible for the things that we don't like happening. But let me ask you this question. If God is not responsible for it, then who do you prefer to be responsible Do you want it to be the random chance of climate that happens to sporadically throw a tsunami or a tornado at us without any real cause? Do you want Satan to be responsible for it? Would you rather everything happening in our world happen because of the deficiency of man or the supremacy of God? Now, if this upsets you, boy, do I have a verse for you. Look with me to Isaiah 45 and 5. It says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open up that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the Lord, let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Now, you just read that right, and so we're going to analyze this, and it's going to force us to grasp some difficult things that we probably already know about God that we don't want to accept about God. Now, there are four things that we pull out of that Isaiah text, and this is what they are. First one, easy. We should all be able to readily accept this. I am the only God. That's simple. None of us has a problem with that. We can all come to a peaceful agreement to that and have no issues right. God is unilaterally the only true and living God, eternal creator of everything. Now, yes, there are repercussions for that, and we will get, up, we will get to that, but we don't want to get hung up on that so that we can get to that second part. And you see the second one. Number two, I create calamity. God creates it. Number three, I cause everything to grow and move, and I own everything. But let's look at number two here. God creates calamity. All right, there's this scripture in Joel that I've heard a lot of charismatic people quote. They quote it out of context, and I get why they do it, and they all shout about it, but let me offer you some clarity. So there's a text in Joel, and it says, I will restore to you the years that the canker worm was the palmer worm and the caterpillar and all these other animals have, have destroyed. So it's describing crop of famine that has taken place in the land. According to the judgment of God, the famine has, and has, has taken place. The crops of the people have been eaten up. 
And it says, and they're shouting about it. People in the church, yeah, amen, God's going to restore. Right, okay, let me offer you some clarity. He says, I will restore to you the years of the canker worm and the palm worm and the, the caterpillar destroyed. And then at the end of it, he says, my great army I sent to you. Okay, well, wait a minute. God is restoring the damage that he did. That's exactly what he's saying. God sent the destruction in the first place. Therefore, he can only he can be the only one who pronounces the restoration. See, a lot of times we look at these things and we think, all right, you know, I caused all this destruction in my life and God's going to restore. But when God sent the destruction, he also sent the restoration, but he did not do it without a cause. He did it so they would be drawn back into a right relationship and total dependence on him. If we are solely responsible for all of the calamity that we see, that means that when a child dies or when I get cancer or when a person finds out about some horrendous crime or whatever the case may be, that means that these things are all happening without any cause at all except for the evil of man. But God says that he creates the calamity. Why would God do this? Well, let me point you back to the original scripture. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God is the sole originator and creator of the universe. How dare we say to God, you can't do this. God only has parameters that he himself sets for himself. As far as us, there is no way we can set parameters of around God dealing with things that we are uncomfortable about. That means when we do see these tragedies, whether they're natural disasters, whether they're horrific acts of sin, we know that God allows the calamity that he allows inevitably in some way for us to look back at him and glorify him. That's the case. Now, some people may say, well, that takes great relief off of me because, yeah, I've made some really bad decisions, but that just means it's just God. God also allows the decisions we make to fall in his sovereign will. And that means that even though God is the originator and the creator and the exact cause of everything sovereignly that happens, we are still responsible for our own sins if we do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may think, well, that is some sort of paradox, and it is, but inevitably the paradox leads us to this. Even when I think I'm in control of my own life, I'm not. And I will not realize that until the end of my life that all the control I thought I had, I will instantly lose as I will be delivered to eternal damnation. But if I'm willing to accept the fact that this earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, then I can relinquish control of this life because I know that whether I have control or feel like I have control, I never really have control. Because if the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, then he says this next thing that I think most of us are probably going to realize. It says, and they that dwell therein. The earth belongs to God, but not just the earth. Also, all of God's creation belongs to him. 
which means if the very earth is subjected to the word of God, then so is man. That means everything that happens, we are completely subjected to the sovereign will of God. And there is nothing that we can do to escape that will. And that means that every time something goes wrong in our lives or in the world, we have to look at it. And instead of saying, look at what Satan is doing. Remember, God says, I will not share my glory with another. Satan does not have any power to kill anybody. If he did, we'd all be dead. The only people who are living are living because God allows it. The only people who have died, died because God allowed it. Okay. He said, well, why does a baby die and an innocent child die and, and a wicked person live their life full and happy? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and they that dwell therein. Now, I want you to find comfort in this because look at this. If God is the supreme creator and ruler over everything that's happening, then that means everything that happens has a cause. It has a reason behind it. It has a purpose. And I know in the long run, it is to glorify God. Even though that gets muddied from time to time when we're going through the things we go through, inevitably, this thing is to glorify God. Now, if God is not the controller and supreme ruler of all these things that happens, that means there's no purpose in anything that happens. That means we are all drifting aimlessly in the sea, hoping that chance skips over us. And I don't know about you, but that is a miserable way to live. But what I do know is that if God is in control of everything that happens, that when it does happen, and even though I can't navigate and understand why it's happening, I know that it's to glorify him. Now, that's one aspect of the earth being the Lord's and all of us who dwell in the earth. But there's another aspect that I want to address, particularly, and I don't ever politicize anything, but particularly in the climate by which we now live, I do want to make something clear about the earth being the Lord's and all of those of us who dwell therein. There is nothing, if God is the supreme creator of the world and every person, and if God himself says that in him there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no male, there is no female, there is no slave, there is no free. That means that God is not distinguishing us according to the way that we are distinguishing one another. That means that there is this paradox that happens for anybody who claims to be a Christian and then distinguishes people in a way that God himself does not distinguish them. 
That means if you claim to be anything in relationship to God and feel any way of any sense of hatred, any sense of ill will toward anybody that is a part of God's creation, if you hate anything on the basis of anybody, whether is where they work, where they live, what they drive, what the color of their skin is, whatever the case is, even their religious belief, you are claiming to have a power that God has not even extended to himself, which is to distinguish people in a way that we should not be distinguishing them. That means you cannot be a, race, a racist Christian. You cannot be a this Christian. You have to be solely a Christian and, a, and nothing else. There is one way that God distinguishes all of us, and let me dumb it down for you. You are either a saint or an ain't, and there ain't no in-between. So while we create all these differences in distinguishing between the race and all this stuff, the Bible makes it clear there is one race, and that's the human race. And we all are the creation of God, and we have all, as we've talked about many of times, been created in the image of God. That means you cannot be any type of Christian and have any hate towards somebody you see every day. Like the Bible tells us and claim to love God. The Bible says that if you hate somebody you see every day and claim to love God that you have never seen, you are lying. That means if God is the king of all creation, let me make this as plain as I can make it. If God created every person that exists, that means God created the racist, God created the pedophile, God created the homosexual, God created the rapist, God created every person, even though they are stained with sin. He did not create them so that we could only see them by the sin attached to them. He created them because just like every one of those people, we needed to be redeemed as well. So we must understand that if we are saints created in the image of God, then every ain't was created in the image of God. And we have no right and no responsibility to have any hate towards anybody because we are not God. We are all God's creation. Now, in saying all that, David says something else here. He asks two prominent questions. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Now, when we see questions like this asked in our text, we are used to seeing these as rhetorical questions, but these are not rhetorical here. David answers them just as quickly as he asks them. So we see the greatness and the power and the might of God. Essentially what he's saying is, who can know this God? Who can know the creator and the sustainer of all? And he has an answer, a perfect one. He says, he who has clean hands, and a pure heart. Now you're probably wondering, why doesn't he just say pure heart? 
Why does he attribute clean hands and a pure heart? Let me tell you, there are always people who proclaim that they are righteous because of what they do, that their deeds make them righteous. But he wants to make sure that there is nothing righteous you can actually do unless you have a pure heart. But then there are also those people who tell us that they have pure hearts. But you can't have a pure heart if it does not transform your life and your actions. Only when your hands are clean and your hearts are pure can you see this great God. That is the only way you will ever truly sense him, feel him, and know him. Those who truly know the Lord have received the greatest blessing that man can receive, and that is being in an unending, unbreakable relationship with the Lord. But before we can enter into that relationship, we must be clean from the inside out. And that's the only way we can know him. Now, that brings us to the final portion of the passage today, and that is the commemoration. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Here, David is using brilliant personification by giving the entrance of the kingdom anthropomorphic qualities. As the king enters in the kingdom, the doors would be raised and the gates would be opened. Just so you know, these are not like like your fence in your backyard. These are massive doors and massive gates that had to be opened, and they're slowly open as the king makes his entrance. The image here is the full coronation of Jesus when eternity receives him. Even in the opening of the doors and the lifting of the gates, they are extending their praise to God and they are glorifying the true king. And that is in Jesus. He then asks this poignant and distinct question. Who is this king of glory? Who is he? What is he like? What are his attributes? Who is he? He is the Lord strong and mighty, mighty in battle. We have seen Jesus before as the commander of the Lord's army. We have seen Jesus lead the final battle in Revelation and we saw him defeat death, hell, and the grave. So I want you to think about this seriously. We are worried about the effects of coronavirus and we are worried about the effects of climate change or we're worried about crime in the city. But we should be more concerned about he who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That is the power that the Lord has. We should revere him. We should fear him more than anything else. Satan doesn't have the power that God has. He doesn't have any power. God alone controls who lives, as I said before. God alone controls who dies. God alone controls who gets sick. And God alone controls who gets well. He is the Lord. And he is mighty. He is the king of glory. But I want you to get this as we close. The only way we will be able to ascend where he has ascended and the only way we will be able to see him with unveiled face is that we are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ 
with clean hands and with pure hearts. I don't know about anybody watching, but I want to see him. I just want to see him face to face. I just want to see him with unveiled face, and I want to be like him, and I want to hear the heavenly host sing as he enters. I want to see all of it. I want all of us to know that without a shadow of a doubt that God is in control and that the world is threaded intricately together by God, by his plan, and by his will. And there is nothing that you should face that should bring you fear, but it should bring fervor. It should bring fire. It should reunite your passion for God because you know that he is in control of everything and that no matter what we face, we have the Lord on our side. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word. We know that you are the King of all creation, God. And while there is so much that this text reveals to us, God, let us be reminded that you are in control of everything. We are your subordinate creation. And the love of God should extend to everybody that is also your creation. That you alone have all power and strength and might. And that you cause everything to happen, whether it's the good things in our life or the bad things. We know that all things are working together for the good of them who are called according to your purpose, not ours. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.